today is June 14th, 2019. Welcome to another episode of Silk and Steel podcast. I am your host, Carl Zha. Uh, well, actually, I will again be an interviewee because I brought back our returning guest slash host, um, Sun Feiyang. Welcome to the show, Sun, Mr. Sun. Thank you for having me back. Uh, so last time we talked about my experience with the, with Camp and Square, this time you wanted to go a little bit more in depth beyond the context. I'm sorry, this is your show now. I'll hand over my host chair to you. Uh, it's all yours, Mr. Sure. So um, as you guys listeners are probably aware, um, we had recorded a, about a 45 minute preview, which discusses some of the context in the lead up to uh, the Tiananmen protests in 1989. And, you know, we went pretty far back, all the way back to the early 80s or so. So for those of you who are interested in that, uh, we do have that available. But today, what we wanted to focus on uh, are the protests themselves. Um, and we will be referring a lot to uh, the wonderful documentary, Gate of Heavenly Peace, which was uh, released sometime in the, in the 90s. Um, and... Uh, we want to go through the events chronologically there, beginning with Huyo Bang's death and the gatherings that uh, immediately followed that. And then uh, I also have a list of questions um, from some viewers that I, I'd like to go through with Carl as well. Some of them will naturally be answered through going through the events chronologically, uh, and then the rest that we don't cover will save for the end. So with that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll turn it over to Carl, but... Uh, I'd like to start with Huyao Bang's death and uh, the, the gatherings that had um, occurred in Beijing as part of the memorials. Oh, sorry. Is it my, my turn to speak? Okay. <laughs> yes, Carl. So if you could just, um, you know, kind of give us an overview of, you know, what happened immediately after Huyao Bang's death, you know, the first gatherings of the students there in Beijing. Right. So Hu Yaobang is a beloved figure among Chinese students and Chinese intellectuals, primarily because he was a man responsible to rehabilitate many of the persecuted Chinese intellectual after Cultural Revolution. Um, I mean, he was, uh, at the time he was uh, in the early 80s, he was designated successor by Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping was a sort of a very hands-off boss. He kind of led, led the people like Hu Yaobang, who he chosen uh, for the, the job of General Secretary of Communist Party to run the show. And one of the things that Hu Yaobang did was uh, kind of give a blanket rehabilitation of all the people uh, persecuted during Cultural Revolution, but particularly the intellectuals. And he gave a, a, a particular attention to, uh, you know, reopening uh, colleges because colleges were shut down during uh, Cultural Revolution. So he, he made an effort to reopen the colleges, uh, restarting the college entrance exam process. Um, I mean, he's, he's a man that seemed that did a lot to bring China back to normalcy. So he was uh, a respected figure. And he, in 1986, as a result of another student protest, um, Hu Yaobang was ousted in a, a, a kind of party interfactional struggle. And a lot of the students felt, you know, Hu Yaobang had been wrong. So in 1989, unexpectedly, Hu Yaobang died of a heart attack, and this opens a way for um, the students coming out of their college campuses in a spontaneous um, a commemoration of Weibang's death. And this is very reminiscent of an event that happened in 1976 um, after the death of Premier Zhou Enlai, again, uh, a very beloved figure by Chinese public. Um, and at that time, he was in the winning days of Cultural Revolution. You know, all the people who came out to Tiananmen Square to commemorate the death of uh, Zhou Enlai um, assumed that 
the event soon that movement turned into kind of repudiation of the cultural revolution policies um and you know and also that that um that protest was squashed um either by on the order of mao or gang of four and and it's it's very relevant here because um at the time, Deng Xiaoping in 1976 was designated successor by Zhou Enlai as someone who will take over his job as the premier. And in 1976, as a result of, like the, the, the protest of 1976 in Tiananmen Square was seen both as a commemoration of Zhou Enlai, a repudiation of uh, cultural revolution policy, but also a show of support for Deng Xiaoping. Uh, but as a result of the, uh, the, the, the 1976 Tiananmen Square protest being squashed, uh, Deng Xiaoping was purged from the party for the last time. Um, and you know he would not come back to power until Mao, Mao's death few months later, and then uh, the coup that we removed uh, Gang of Four, uh, eventually, you know, Deng Xiaoping was brought back to power. So keep that. So what was different this time then? Um, because, you know, as you mentioned, th those protests were dealt with, but these protests, you know, seem to kind of go on and on. So why, why did the government, you know, not take action there? Uh, this time, like, what was different about 1989? Yes. Okay, so one thing about 1976 is that um, Mao was still very much in control. I mean, it, even though cult, cultural revolution is a very com complicated uh, uh, matter, I don't want to dwell too much into that because that, that could be easily multiple episode right there. Um, but uh, Mao rightly saw uh, the protest in Tiananmen Square commemoration of Zhou as a repudiation of, uh, of Cultural Revolution, which was his uh, project. And, and he put a quick end to that by calling in the capital militia who went in and, uh, you know, basically dispersed the crowd with clubs. So this time they didn't see the student gatherings for Hui Aobang's memorial as a repudiation of, of him being removed from power? Um, it's well. Students were definitely protesting uh, Hu Yaobang being removed from power. That's uh, you mm -hmm. know because you know Huyao, again Hu Yaobang is a beloved figure. Though students felt he was wrong uh, in 1986, and but you have to understand at the time uh, in 1989, the Communist Party is at a is a very different from. Um, the Communist Party leadership in 1976. Um, in 1976, although there are still factional party politics, but Mao was undisputed leader, right? He was, he was the, uh, he, some, some people would say the God Emperor. And in 1989 though, Deng Xiaoping was in a semi-retirement he was, you know, he, at the time in 1989, Deng Xiaoping already retired from all his official position except as uh, chairman of the Central Military Commission. And, mm -hmm. and the, the ones that of the, at least officially supposed to be running the show is Zhao Ziyang and Li Peng, right? Zhao Ziyang is the general secretary of Communist Party, which nominally is the most powerful position in the country. And then the Peng was the premier and which handles more kind of like everyday um, running of the country. And this, this, uh, this, this separate, this, this kind of separation of power um, kind of mirror a, a, like a factional struggle in the background. You know, one, one side is represented by by Zhao Ziyang and his faction, and the other side is represented by Li Peng, right? And 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 uh, mm -hmm. the faction behind him, and 
and at the time there was also um, a big discussion within the party about the direction of reform because a lot of things have changed since 1976 especially after the opening and reform under went underway in 1978 and uh, you know there was a lot of experimentation right and Deng Xiaoping uh, famously said it doesn't matter <laughs> what color of the cat it doesn't matter uh, the cat is black or mm. white as long as right. mice <laughs> it's a good cat um, and and that that some people take interpret that as like anything goes uh, but then they're also uh, part of the party elders represented by Chen Yun, which is another um, uh, uh, another survivor and also a very pr prestigious senior figure who hold a different view. And Chen Yun famously is famous for his uh, birdcage economics. Um, what he said was, you know, like uh, the 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 free market is like the bird, right? Um, the, the command economy is like the cage. You always need a cage. It's just a matter of, you can't adjust the size of the cage. You can, you can shrink it or mm -hmm. make it larger, but you always need to make sure there's a cage to contain the bird, which is a market economy. Yeah. So that, that's, so, go ahead. Yeah, definitely, uh, uh, a less, uh, you can say, unified um, party with many different factions as, as compared to the Mao era. So I do want to move us a little bit along, um, as the documentary states that, you know, as the students started gathering, you know, we have a bunch of people together, they start talking, they start talking about all sorts of things. And we did mention in the preview, we talked about, you know, the students had concerns about inflation, they had concerns about prices, they had concerns about tuition subsidies, um, and, and they started to, to formulate demands. And if you could take us through some of those things that they started talking about. Yeah. Um, yes. I think that's where we want to go next. Yeah, another thing that students are protesting against is official corruption. Because there was a perceived uh, rampant official corruption. And one of the figures targeted by students in particular is the son of uh, Zhao Ziyang the party secretary of Communist Party. And, and Zhao, Ziyang is, Zhao Ziyang's son is widely seen as the biggest Guandao, the biggest uh, official um, official black marketeer, basically. Um, and, 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 and students were demanding that he be investigated. Uh, and the, this is one of this. Another demand of the students is a revaluation of 1986 student protest, which includes re-evaluation of Wang, right? Uh, basically, they want to rehabilitate his, his, uh, his reputation. Um, and and uh, among the, the other more mundane uh, demands are like uh, students are allowed to um, run their own, um, have their own independent uh, student unions um, and uh, they have more, um, basically, they have more freedom around campus, right? Like they, they wanted to remove some of those restrictive rules that were placed on them uh, on campus life. Uh, and, and that is, uh, you know, not that far removed from their previous, uh, previous like the demands of previous protests in 1986 or 87. Uh, but this time, it, it, it a little bit more because of um, because of the, the, the high inflation and uh, what then what they see as rampant corruption. So, so those were the most really the I think most important drivers in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so this is about early April, yes. so right. Yes. So what changes from you know, these early April gatherings in which you say, like, the, the demands are not so different from previous protests. Um, and, you know, it's probably not as concerning yet to, to the central committee. Right. Um, so, you know, at what point does does the their thinking on these protests start to shift? And 
when do the protests, like the nature of the students and, and what they're demanding change as well from, you know, what they started out with? Right. So actually, uh, you know, if you read a reporting from the Western media around the time from times of April and early May, um, you know, people were amazed that the, the Communist Party was kind of hands off toward the student protests. They let the students occupy entire Tiananmen Square, which was like the heart of Beijing. And, and that went on for, you know, more than a month. And, you know, the, in the beginning, part of it is because um, uh, perhaps the party saw it as just a rehash of another student protest, something they have seen mm-hmm. before. Um, but also in the background, there was, uh, there was a, a very heated debate among the party elders on what to do, right? So there's just also like a generation uh, gap within the party at the time. So the uh, what uh, uh, around 1986, uh, what then Xiaoping did after he removed Hu Yaobang from power, another thing he did is he kind of forced all the party elders to step down uh, by himself taking the lead of retiring from all his posts, except the, again, as the chairman of military commission and putting like a, essentially an age limit on the, on the polit- political bureau. So um, a lot of the senior, the party elders of Deng's generation stepped down to make room for uh, younger leaders like Zhao Ziyang, like Li Peng, right? But um, but then there's still a kind of informal, um, like a, almost like a consultation uh, process where the, the party elders who were retired but still gathered to kind of discuss policies and and the, 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 the young, young generation leaders um, like Li Peng and, and Zhao Ziyang will still go to those party elders for advice for important decisions, right? I mean, that's basically what Zhao Ziyang told Gorbachev when Gorbachev uh, came visit China in May. Um, during right. their, because, because Gorbachev, at least officially, Gorbachev as a, a secretary, uh, general secretary of the Communist Party of Soviet Union and and Zhao Ziyang as uh, party secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, officially they're equals, right? But what Zhao Ziyang said to Gorbachev was that, well, actually, for more important, most important decision, we still uh, go seek advice from our elders. Right. Very telling statement. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that was kind of the situation within the party. There's a there's a kind of generation. Um, transition that that was kind of in progress and 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 also there's there's two sides there's more um kind of conservative side of the party that thought the reform has gone too far um they want to ring in some kind of uh some some of these reform including economic reform at the time and then there's uh the the other part i mean this is a very simplistic uh, a binary of you know hardliners versus uh, the, the reformer, but but there's uh, there's the other side uh, that wanted to just keep going what they're doing currently with the with the re- opening and reform process and plowing ahead, um, and that that debate is ongoing while the students um, were occupying the square. So essentially the um, the two sides in the party could not decide, could not agree on what to mm-hmm. do about the students. And that's, that's another reason uh, there were some confusing editorials that were coming out from the party control media, right? There was, uh, in, in, in April, in early, uh, mid-April, there were, at one point, there were um, editorial from Guangmin Daily that praised the students for um, you know, basically, uh, grant calling it a patriotic movement, right? And 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 it's at at that point, um, I think people kind of almost had a collective sigh of relief. Oh, okay, like 
the, the party has recognized uh, students of the patriotic movement. So, uh, you know, students who can, can probably just go home and they can negotiate on the finer points of those demands later. Uh, and, and to an extent that was happening until uh, the, I think, April 26th edit, People's Daily editorial that came out with very harshly uh, worded um, uh, a term, Dongluan, right? The mm-hmm. term is the, the, the student movement as bringing chaos and turmoil. And that kind of got the, ins- kind of uh, incited the students to go back to the square because they feel, um, you know, if they were just leave the square now, there, there will be fan gong dao suan, right? There will be a, <laughs> there will be reper- definitely be kind of repercussions and and and. Uh, so you see the April twenty sixth editorial as kind of the turning point for like the students to also, you know, increase their demands as well because prior to that, as you had mentioned, yeah. they had the numbers had begun to dwindle a bit too, despite um, you know. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. I mean, one part of it is because, you know, they have already been in the square for, for nearly a month and uh, weather was getting warmer. <laughs> it was just getting too damn hot to stay out, out in the sun for that long. Um, uh, but go ahead. Yeah. So that makes sense. So after April 26, you know, what, what did, what did change in the nature of the students' demands? You know, did they, how did they start escalating other than, you know, more students coming back to the square? What was, what was the change, you know, what they're asking for, what they're doing? Yeah, I think there's definitely an escalation of the demands themselves. Um, officially, be- before there was just a general demand of party investigation of corruption, um, even though there was a specifically Sang <laughs> Zhao Ziyang was named, but uh, and also ring in the, the, the inflation, improve the livelihood of the students and faculties, um, uh, which is supported by the teachers as well. And 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 the, the part about inflation also echoes like the sentiment of the urban dwellers throughout most of the China. Um, but after April 26, the demand got more specific. I remember, um, you know, there's the demand of independent student union uh, because before, you know, like the, all the um, student union on campus is controlled, directly controlled and guided by the Communist Party, right? Or the, uh, or the Communist Youth League, uh, um, so, so the, the, the students demand independent student union that's elected by this directly elected by the student bodies um and they demanded um uh i don't i I don't remember the specifics on top of my head now but um uh, or they, they also demanded um the you know convening of the people's congress to um you know one to 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 uh, reevaluate, uh, they wanted to repudiation of the April twenty sixth editorial. That's one specific mm-hmm. demand, right? Because they, they want to the, the student movement to be rec- officially recognized as patriotic movement, and they want apology for from the government for the April twenty sixth demand, right? That's another very specific, and 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 also a promise of. Uh, you know, there will not be retaliations, um, you know, on campus, in schools, against the students taking part in the protest. Um, that's also mm-hmm. another very specific demand because, you know, at the time, now student leaders particularly were concerned that uh, if they were to stop now, then they will be the target for government crackdown, right? So is it at this time that we also see workers in Beijing? joining or trying to join the protests or is that something that emerges later that actually happened even before i think especially around the time when uh guangmin daily came out basically in support of students right mm-hmm. people kind of saw oh wow even the official media supported the students uh, okay then it's, it's it. kind of like it's okay <laughs> to join the protest especially when a lot of the 
demands of the students are not that different from the, you know many demands of say the intellectuals or or the the, the workers or, or the urban dwellers right and 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 there were like not just workers i mean just like a lot of um uh people in the city like from different work units right you will have from from the hospital from uh even from the police department from from like all different work units, they will have people holding up banners, say, oh, we come to support the students, you know, from so-and-so work units and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So the workers weren't assembling in the square. Were they assembling elsewhere? Um, so, so, okay, so after, like, all the people from all walks of life start joining the protest. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think that's when, you know, the, then the, the workers start to coalesce, right, into their own own coalition. Um, it, it's, a, it's a more gradual process, I guess. Got it. Okay, so after the students, you know, increase their demands and, you know, they, the numbers in the square start swelling again, and we start approaching, you know, Gorbachev's upcoming visit, you know, and in the document, the students, they know Gorbachev is coming too. And there, there is an implicit bet that, well, they're not going to take any action when everyone is Beijing watching and Gorbachev is here. So we can at least stay in the square until then, you know, does the debate within the central committee start to shift then? Like, you know, now that they see, oh, there's uh, the students are back, they're intensifying their demands. You know, as does that shift the, the discussion at this point it's still deadlocked within the party mm-hmm. so there's a there's a faction um represented by Cao Ziyang, right mm-hmm. they, they talk about maybe giving in to some of the students demand but there's a faction of the party saying well you know if you give an inch the <laughs> demand just they'll just create more demands right there's like this, this was a challenge to the authority this shouldn't be tolerated if i was very even among the polybium mm-hmm. that's why there's a paralysis of the decision making process i mean that's one reason why the students were left alone for so long in the square for you know more than two months before even anything was even decided what to do uh, because the second generation, or I guess you'd say the third generation leadership, could not could not make that that decision. It was so evenly split that 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 no decision eventually was taken. So, what do you see as the next major milestone then? Because of course Gorbachev comes. We see these wonderful signs that the students have comparing, you know, the the forward looking young, exciting Gorbachev, you know, it's the old, decrepit, backwards thing that we had mentioned before, you know, and and those signs obviously have aged pretty poorly, but... Yeah, I don't know if you remember that um, yes. scene. So so they demanded dialogue, direct dialogue with the government officials. Um, uh, that eventually that was, I mean, there was a famous scene where the students' leaders some students leaders were kneeling down in front of the um, hall of the great people holding up their petition kind of like very reminiscent of the old days of the traditional china when how uh, petitioners mm-hmm. will petition like the imperial officials right um, see so that the student leaders they were they were elected but they were not like that doesn't necessarily mean they represent all the student voice because the, the, the decision by this selected group of student leaders would do that actually, uh, you know, was looked upon disapprovingly by some of the students. Because some of the students were yelling at them, saying, why, well, get up, you know, what are you doing? Why are you kneeling down like you are, you are petitioning to like, like imperial officials, right? That's so demeaning. And... Uh, but it had a very powerful yeah. effect, just the imagery, right? Or what we call now call the optics, right? <laughs> when when the students lead, kneeling down on the steps of uh, of Great Hall of people, and then you see these official just kind of basically ignoring them, <laughs> and and that that I think further radicalized the students um, until finally when the the government official decide to meet face to face 
Um, but by that time, when they did sit down, you, they weren't even talking to each other. They were talking past each other. Does the students have have become more strident in their demands? Where um, uh, uh, I mean, like at the time, it was they were just talking, totally talking past each other. Li Peng was seeing us kind of talking down to the students, lecturing them, and the students were yelling back uh, demands mm -hmm. that. Unacceptable <laughs> the party leadership. It was it was a bit of disaster. The the, the whole dialogue meeting, which was broadcasted, um, and 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 also remember, this was a time when uh, because because the Gorbachev visiting China was such a big event in nineteen eighty nine because of the long standing Sino Soviet split that was finally starting to thaw in late eighties after Gorbachev came to power. And 1989 was supposed to be the visit that seals the deal, that, that normalized the relationship between the two. So all these Western media reporters were gathering around in Beijing to report on the Gorbachev visit. They, they didn't go there to report on the student protests. They, were there to, um, they just chanced upon this huge, gigantic protest. And also at around the time, BBC and Voice America were actively broadcasting in Chinese into China. And I remember, you know, my grandpa was listening to them. Everybody, my neighbors, everybody was listening to them. So they were also broadcasting live from Camden Square. Um, so, so people, even the people in the, in the sticks knew what was going on. And, um, and, and the, you know, reporting of stuff like, uh, and also, like, uh, on, around campuses all over China, students are taking over radio stations. So they will also relay these broadcasts to their own campuses. So, so when there's the, the news of, you know, say, people talking on the students and the students uh, kneeling in front of the hall of people and being ignored by the delegates, that... They got a lot of publicity too, and the students in the documentary, some of them are interviewed. I forget which specific leaders, but they had mentioned that you know they felt like they weren't getting a lot of coverage. They're a little frustrated and disappointed, and all of a sudden, you know, all of these Western reporters are there. They're getting interviews. They're getting a lot of FaceTime. They're getting on TV, and that was that was very exciting for a lot of them. They felt like you know they were finally being heard, and I think that also gave them a lot of encouragement and you know a lot more. Uh, will to, to stay in, in the square. So, you know, Gorbachev comes, he meets, he leaves. It's, it's a little bit of a non-standard visit oh, yeah. because a little bit rushed because of the, the massive protests going on. So what happens after that? You know, the students, they didn't get what they wanted during this visit. Gorbachev is now gone, you know, and can you give us a little bit about like what the students are reassessing right now? And, and then at the same time, what the Central Committee is, is thinking about, like, you know, we dealt with the Gorbachev visit. What's next? While the Central Committee was being paralyzed by the even split in the top leadership, the students were growing more radicalized, especially among the student leaders. Um, and one factor is, like you said, the, the student leaders were getting a lot of airtime. They're getting interviewed by, you know, BBC, CNN, all the big Western media source. So they felt, you know, they felt empowered. They felt they were, uh, they have a lot of, lot of cloud, a lot of power. And I think it emboldened them to, to, to increase their demands. Mm -hmm. And, and this was time when the hunger strike started, right? Cause especially when they felt that the government kind of just totally ignored their demands. Um, they, they felt a, a more radical uh, action was needed to prod the government uh, to agreeing some of their demands. So that's when they started hunger strike. Like the, the hunger strike was also, by the way, reported all across the country. So even me in Chongqing knew about the hunger strike. And it had a powerful effect, uh, especially among the ordinary citizens, right? And they, they uh, a lot of them came out to support the students. I mean, they, they came out to provide water, to provide like medical service. There was outpouring of support. You made them more resolved to stay in the square, essentially. I know this isn't as relevant to 1989, 
But we do now know now, or we do now know that some of these hunger strikers may not have been hunger striking the entire time, and that especially Urukaisi, um, you know, there are there are reports of him secretly eating noodles during his hunger strike. You know, and I don't know if that applies to all of the students hunger striking, but it definitely seems there are reports of some of them, you know, embellishing a little bit. Have you heard of anything like that? Yeah. Not at the time. Absolutely not. Not at the time. Not not at the time. Yeah, at the time it was, you know, what we're seeing a lot of images of, you know, students passing out under the heat, you know, by heat stroke or or, or seemed like very enfeebled by the hunger strike. Uh, you know, I, I don't even know how those images got passed <laughs> to Chongqing, honestly, but I remember seeing them and, and and that gathered a lot of sympathy from the public because uh, once again, this uh, in 1989, the the percentage of college uh, uh, percentage of college students as the total population was a tiny tiny fraction. I mean, it was like the equivalent of. Uh, in the traditional China of passing the highest level of imperial exam, it, it was a, it was al- almost like that level of rareness to to get into college, especially like a prestigious college mm-hmm. in Beijing, like Beida or Tsinghua, right? And they they, they were seen widely seen, not just by themselves, but overall society as the cream de la cream of, of China, of you know China China's future, China's. Uh, you know, future leadership, and, and they saw students going through these uh, hardships to what many felt was reasonable demands when the government will be ignored. So, so, so that just garnered more and more. Support. So, you know what? What happens next? Basically, like um, there, what is the next catalyst for new action after Gorbachev leaves China? You know, and the hunger strikes start. We're, we're moving closer to the end of May, right? And then, so this yes. uh, needs to be resolved. And, and they went, of course, to the party, like the party elders now got involved, right? And, and, but the problem was the party elders was also split on what to do. Um, and so the, finally, the one that will break the tie will be Deng Xiaoping. Right. So, so they all um, tried to appeal to Deng Xiaoping and the, the, the faction that wanted to, uh, to put down the protest got, you know, Deng Xiaoping's year and, and Deng Xiaoping made the decision to declare martial law. Yeah. The protest needs to end. So, so with Deng Xiaoping's support, but it seems like the the faction represented by Li Peng, right? They, uh, but but really, it's the people, the party elders behind Li Peng, especially Wang Zhen, the PLA leader, one of the party elders. They got to Deng Xiaoping first, basically, and they 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 convinced Deng Xiaoping that this is just like cultural revolution, right? This is gonna if if the if the protests were to go on, it's just gonna lead to chaos. It's gonna lead to like cultural revolution style chaos. And to that I think had a powerful effect on Deng Xiaoping. Absolutely. <laughs> Deng Xiaoping uh, went through some some hard times during cultural revolution and and also his his experience um, and also in nineteen see like the nineteen seventy six Tiananmen protest uh, he, he he saw. I think he probably saw echoes of that as well. Um, he probably finally saw the you know, 1989 Cameron protest as kind of a, uh, like an echo of 1976. Except now he was the one that's the policy was being repudiated, <laughs> right? And, and 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 I think he suspected that. Uh, also, the Wang Zhen's faction convinced Deng Xiaoping that the faction with Zhao Ziyang was trying to profit politically from this uh, prolonged student protest by gaining power and, and appearing to side with the students. So in the end, uh, Deng Xiaoping decided basically Zhao Ziyang will be out. Uh, martial 
loss will be declared, and and Li Peng went on um, television and declared martial law to clear the square. So that is the final. Uh, I don't know. That's 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 the straw that broke Camel's back. I guess that that, that really drove students even. Into more radical direction, and that's when Zhao Ziyang famously visits the square, right? You know, and he says he gives his talk to the students, and he says, you know, we, referring to the party leadership, we are old, we don't matter anymore, and that's a that's a pretty iconic moment uh, of the protests, and that's right before martial law is officially declared, right? Like the students don't know what's coming yet. Zhao Ziyang knows. This is the interesting part because. He said, uh, "I'm sorry, I came late. I came here too late, right? Because mm-hmm. one of the demand of students was always meeting with the party leaders. So after his visit to Tiananmen Square, the whole uh, perception of Zhao Ziyang was changed among the student protests. Like I said before that, uh, the demand was to investigate his son mm-hmm. <laughs> as the number one." Uh, official black black tears in the country. So after the uh, Cao Ziyang's visit to this Tiananmen Square, it, the the it, it kind of shifted 180 degrees, and now the primary target is Li Peng and Deng Xiaoping. Right after Cao Ziyang's visit to the Tiananmen Square, so there was a there's an event where some people some somebody rushed to the square and told the students that, you know, before it was announced on TV that there there was going to be a crackdown and Zhao Ziyang is out and uh, now the martial law will be declared and the army will come in to clear the square. That was the point where kind of strengthened people's students' resolve to stay in the square even more. I remember there's a there's a blogger called China Hand, because uh, that's his uh, Twitter handle. But his real name is Peter Lee. He was actually on Camden Square uh, through June fourth, and he wrote about his own eyewitness account, and he he recounted that that scene that the, the, the man rushed to the Camden Square to tell the students about ousting of Daoxiang and the the decision to. To crack down, he he made uh, some interesting remarks. Said he, you know, who, how did that that man get that information, and and you know what made him to go to the square to tell the students, which really kind of set up the scene for the final final confrontation, and and if if that person was somehow related to say the Zhao Ziyang's faction, that that's that's kind of speculation, but. Um, you know, at, at this point. <laughs> so I do want to talk about the students' reaction, like you mentioned, because you said that in response to martial law, you know, a lot of the students, they kind of like intensified their resolve. Um, and that's definitely true for some of the students. But in the documentary, as I recall, there are some people among the students who advocate that this is the time for us to clear the square because then we'll make the government look bad and make their declaration of martial law look, um, you know, look like unreasonable, basically. So they did have a discussion and uh, you know, a vote, basically, on, on whether we should clear the square or not. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the best traditions of a, like, a big crowd democracy, they kind of did it by voice vote. And it was, it was a little unclear, you know, which side had really won um, this vote. So... Uh, the documentary seems to imply that that Chai Ling made the decision to say, like, hey, you know, we're, we voted to stay, and so we're going to stay. And obviously, if you really felt strongly about leaving, you probably left yourselves. But something we also mentioned in the preview, there are new students coming in from all over China all the time, and they don't necessarily have the context of these internal debates, you know, at the square. You know, they show up at the train station, they go to Tiananmen. They don't know that, you know, there's a lot of people in Tiananmen already debating leaving the square is that those internal discussions among the students, you know, don't get out there necessarily. There's another side of that too, is because the Beijing students who have been in the square for a long time, some of them um, chose to take a break, go back to their dorms, go back to campus. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But there's steady streams of students from provinces to come to the square. 
they have nowhere to go. Yeah. <laughs> the, Beijing, the, the Beijing University students can return to their campuses, but these, these university students from uh, other provinces, they literally have no place to go. You know, the, uh, I was uh, did a little more research. Apparently, a high proportion, there's a significant amount of people from, you know, other provinces that end up staying in the square. Um, and I was talking, to, I remember talking to, talking online to one of the students who participated in the, the 1989 student protest. She was uh, one of the students from Beijing, and that's what she told me. She's like, yeah, we, we, we were out there for like two months, we were tired, you know, we, we just went home to take a break to rest. And, but these, these people from other provinces, they, they just have no place to go. They just, and they also just got there. So they, they just, they were more determined that they just pitch the tent and uh, stick it out. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And, um, and, and also we should talk about probably about the, interview of some of these uh, student leaders is particular titling uh titling on the some of the kind of behind the scene discussion among themselves and what their plan was for the students so when does that famous uh, chiling interview with the american reporter happen you know it's it's really the only the major clips of her in that documentary because she declined to be interviewed and i honestly don't think she comes off very well in that interview but when no, when no. does that tearful interview happen? Because she says a lot of things that, you know, sound don't sound very good and don't put her in a very good light. Um, so when does that happen? It's definitely after the martial law um, declaration. But how yeah. many? How long before June fourth is that? I, I I don't know. I have to look it up. What people remember about Tiding interview as she has been selfish basically placing herself above the interests of the students in the square, including the student life. Because one of the things partic in particular, what she said was, you can't tell them what our plan was. You know, our, 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 our real plan is we need to have confrontation. We need to have bloodshed. Only when there's bloodshed that can open people's eyes to the true nature of the, this government. But and then later he said, but I am too important to remain in the square. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She says, also says that, you know, she's really disappointed in the Chinese people. She, she doesn't feel that they're worth her struggle, you know, and, and I'm sure a lot of revolutionaries, a lot of protesters have felt the same way before, but that's not something you say out loud. You know, like, you don't want to publicly admit that you don't think the people of your country are really worth you personally. And at this time, like, she has a U.S. visa, too, doesn't she? She's not the only one. Yeah. The leaders, but, you know. It yeah, so, like, all this, I mean, uh, in the aftermath of um, Tiananmen Square protests, there's a, there's a CIA operation, U.S. government operation called Yellowbird. Um, that specifically all the help to smuggle out all the top student leaders, intellectuals, and uh, quite a few uh, Chinese officials who were uh, basically the kind of like the brain trust of Zhao Ziyang, right? So that was interesting. Mm -hmm. A lot of the people, a lot of the students who remain on the square did not have that option, option right? They, they, they did not uh, have the U.S. visa. They couldn't be smuggled out i like tiling um yeah and that's why i think a lot of people i mean <laughs> people's view of tiling totally changed after the documentary came out uh gate of one piece in 1995 um basically six years after the event uh, yeah yeah mm -hmm. i think you know nowadays mostly remember for that interview he gave she gave yeah. So, you know, martial law has been declared. There are some internal debates within the students about, like, whether they should stay or go. And a lot of the students do leave because in the documentary, it's mentioned that because a lot of the students are leaving, you know, then uh, Hou Dejian and Liu Xiaobo, they, they, they actually decide to go on hunger strike, too. You know, and they come to the square and they give a speech. And, and the documentary mentions that as one of the reasons that 
in the days before June 4th, some of the students start to come back. Um, yeah. you know, it's framed as inadvertent, but you know, what is the catalyst for, for those two to, to start their hunger strike? I think they talk about it in the in the documentary. I don't remember exact uh, reason they gave. Um, I think one of the one of the things they wanted to show support um, mm-hmm. and and also um, you know Ho De Jian for people who are not familiar was a was a Taiwanese singer composer. He was a big pop star in China for uh, defecting to China from Taiwan in the early 1980s and he so he you know he made all the appearances on cctv and he had a famous song called you know my chinese heart which was like you know nobody here it was a it was a big uh you know it was song everywhere in china right like like his his song everybody knows his song you mean Uh, descendants of the dragon right Long the Chuan Oh, was was somebody else on the, 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 my, my Chinese song? I think Wo Xin. I think Wo Xin is by someone else. I don't know if he also sang that one. Okay, but. okay. So yeah, yeah. So Long the Chuan definitely. Long the Chuan is his song. I mean, these two songs basically very electrifying in the early eighties when they, and the both of them have you know by Taiwanese composers singers, um, and and Ho De Jian is famous for his. Uh, you know, coming to mainland despite, you know, uh, the ban in Taiwan. And and so he's well known in China, big, big, huge pop star. Uh, and so he and he has a he knows how to work the crowd. So just the fact that he his star power <laughs> on Tiananmen Square drew people, you know, to back to the square. Um, and, and another thing they talk about in their interview was they, they admitted once they were there, they kind of got, you know, they were infected by the energy in the square. They felt, you know, they were powerful. They were in power. They, they, they felt like uh, uh, they were making a difference, right? Which kind of, uh, you know, just, just prolonged the protest. And this is after martial law has been declared. So when does the, uh, the PLA first move into Beijing? Like when do the first uh, troops start coming in? Late, late May. Um, this is late May, uh, and so they because to move a large number of troops to the to the capital, it, it actually takes some time, right? It didn't happen overnight. In fact, there was one Chinese general that was court-martialed afterwards for refusing the order to move the army into Beijing, and. Uh, I remember, I don't remember his name right top of my head. Point blank refusing, and and I think one of his his superior also used the excuse that he was sick and trying to <laughs> try to trying to get out of the issue in the command uh, to to order his unit to move into Beijing. I think both of them were court martial. Um, but so the first troops to move in were unarmed, right? I remember that there were like maybe two or three. Yeah, and the first. Yeah, so the the first um, batch of troops were moving. They were just so young young soldiers, uh, unarmed, and but their trucks were uh, basically stopped on the outskirts of Beijing. Uh, you know, before they entered the city, the, the, the Beijing citizens and students kind of formed like human chains to block the the traffic to prevent them from coming in. But some of them apparently did. Um, I don't know if there's some kind of uh, special tunnels or <laughs> secret ways to get into Beijing because eventually um, in June 3rd, there were already troops in the in, in Beijing. There were troops in um, Great Hall People, which is right next to Tiananmen Square. And, and those troops tried to come out. Um, uh, there was an event where it um, was in the dark documentary as well. There were a couple buses of uh, People's Liberation Army soldiers that were intercepted by the citizens and the students. Um, and then they discovered that there were actually arms 
I mean, ostensibly those uh, soldiers were unarmed, but they discovered there are some weapons uh, hidden in the car, in the in the bus. So all the uh, the soldiers were dragged out from the ang from the bus by the angry crowd, and the the crowd actually took um, took possession of the weapons. Do you remember that that part? Yeah, I uh, I remember that, and. Um... Yeah, there are a lot of scenes with the soldiers in the documentary. Um, you know, there's yeah. there are also ones in which like people are, are handing them vegetables and food and, yes. and trying to be nice to them, like just say, you know, what are you doing here? You sh you shouldn't be here. Yeah, we saw so in the provinces in Chongqing, we saw that we saw people uh, handing students or oh, soldiers water, food. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so we, you know, that's why like the whole time we glued towards the television to watch the drama unfold, but none of us kind of, uh, felt like any kind of urgency or something terrible was about to happen because everything seems so amicable, right? Uh, at least mm -hmm. on television. And, but on June 3rd, High Central Committee, it gave the Chinese army a deadline to clear the square. Right, mm -hmm. and but on June third, the first attempt was made um, is when the, the 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 buses of soldiers were intercepted outside the Tiananmen Square. They discover weapons on the bus, so they the angry crowd dragged the soldiers out. You know, took possession of the the all the weapons, and then the the soldiers inside the Great Hall people tried to come out, trying to reach the buses, but they got pushed back by the students and the crowd. And in the end, there was even a singing match between the the, the soldiers and the, the the students. You know, the, both sides sing like revolutionary songs and try to outmatch each other, right? I mean, it's even mm -hmm. at that point, it was still like there's no ostensible confrontation. It was just like a duo, right. a singing duo, right? And but eventually, the the soldiers were order back into Great Hall of People. Um, then the decision was, I guess, made to for the fully armed soldiers to move into the square, to move into the city. So, and this is kind of a side point, but the documentary makes a big deal about how the arrival of the, the army is, is alien to the people of Beijing. And I, I, I do understand that, you know, the, the army doesn't enter Beijing in peacetime. But when you look at the images of the soldiers in the documentary, it's very, very obvious that these are soldiers from a rural background. I don't know if that's clear to you, but, you know, you they just look very rural. I, it's very hard for me to describe, but... That's just a fact that most of the recruits yeah. <laughs> of PLA came from the rural background, right? That's their main recruiting, yeah. recruiting ground. Like my uncle was in the PLA, and he was like, you know, stationed in Jiayuguan. But you know, I, I've seen pictures of him, and as you, and he looks like the soldiers in in the in the documentary. They look very different from the students. They even look different from like you know the urban workers. They're just um, they're definitely rural mm -hmm. uh, people. And um, you know, I don't know how much of that factors into like the people of Beijing seeing them as alien. You know, because a lot of people. I don't know about alien. It's a right word. That's the word they use in the documentary, and it made me a little uncomfortable. But you know, that's yeah. I don't because even even those the the documentary show. You know, you see the people were handing the soldiers the food and, and the water. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and the whole education in PRC, you are brought to believe like uh, you know the soldiers, their people's army. You know, you, you're we're on the same side, and and. This is a, that's, that's, I mean, the PLA still, despite all the recruits coming from like a rural, mostly rural background, but PLA still carry a lot of prestige, right? At least in 1989. Mm -hmm. I didn't sense, at least in the, in Chongqing, I didn't feel like the army would be alien, you know, even to Beijing urban dwellers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the, you know, the army has like a couple of unsuccessful attempts to right. move in. You know, I, and I want to ask about some of the images that you can find online um, of burning APCs, basically. And there are some people that appear to be soldiers that, that are burned or lynched or hanged. Like, does any of that happen before June 3rd, the night of no. June 3rd? Or 
does some of that violence happen before that? Or is that, so that's all like on June 3rd, more or less? Everything happened on June 3rd. Yeshua 